Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. It's the day before Florida passes a six-week abortion ban. And I'm in Tallahassee, sitting across the table from the man who is shepherding the bill through the state legislature, Paul Renner, Florida's powerful Speaker of the House. You might not know Renner's name, but you definitely know his work. A bill to ban surgeries and prescription treatments for transgender minors, which has passed the state Senate, and Renner will soon push through the House. One of the most comprehensive new school voucher laws in the country. Legislation removing books with sexual content from Florida public schools. A major tort reform bill, big tax cuts. And if he gets around to it this session, a bill aimed at overturning the 1964 Times v. Sullivan decision the most important First Amendment ruling of the last century. All of this is aimed at Renner's other project, helping Governor Ron DeSantis build a record of accomplishments in Florida on which he can base his presidential campaign. At the start of the year, Renner promised that he and DeSantis and their Republican colleagues would use their supermajority in the legislature to achieve, quote, transformational change in Florida. They weren't kidding. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Paul Renner is a staunchly pro-life preacher's son from Northwest Florida. He's a retired naval officer and a lawyer. He shares with Ron DeSantis a strong conviction that Florida should be America's red counterexample to the progressivism of Joe Biden, Gavin Newsom, and AOC, as well as what he sees as the cultural liberalism of big corporations such as Disney and BlackRock. In Great Britain, they talk about a shadow government, you know, and I think Florida in some respects has become kind of the alternative. I met with Renner early in the morning in his suite of offices off the House floor to talk about the so-called Florida Way. It was a particularly sensitive moment in the DeSantis presidential launch. The governor has been dropping in national polls after an avalanche of attacks from Donald Trump, as well as the former president's arrest in New York, which has galvanized GOP support for him. The recent work of the Florida legislature has been translated in the national media through the prism of a few buzzwords. Book bans, don't say gay, attacks on journalists, abortion bans. While Republicans have created a legislative assembly line that is spitting out laws to change seemingly every aspect of life in Florida, a big question suddenly hangs over their project. Are they building a record of accomplishments that can launch the DeSantis rocket to the White House? Or are they weighing down the governor with so much right-wing baggage that he crashes upon liftoff? Case in point, the new law banning abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, a period when many women don't even know they are pregnant. 
in an era where Republicans have lost election after election in states like Kansas, Kentucky, and Wisconsin over unpopular stances on abortion, is Renner worried that by pushing his supermajority to the max, he's risking a backlash? Let's talk about some non-controversial issues, book bans, abortion, and transgender rights. (laughs) Right. So I've read that the heartbeat bill for you personally is an important priority. You've seen in the national conversation recently how a lot of uh, Republicans are getting a little squeamish and worried about the politics of abortion. We had a Supreme Court open seat uh, in Wisconsin recently where a progressive candidate running, you know, very openly on uh, protecting abortion rights, uh, uh, won the race. I noticed the Wall Street Journal editorial page after that race said, hey, Republicans, you're going to get killed in 2024 if you keep going down this road on further restricting abortion rights. A lot of people think for the Republican Party, something that you can you can defend in a national election in some of these swing states is a 15-week bill. Um, but once you start talking about six weeks, where some women don't even know they're pregnant yet, that that, and I'm really just talking about the politics on this, that that is just a killer for your party. And uh, I'm sure you're very cognizant of the fact that there's so much attention on what you're doing here nationally. You're putting yourself out there at Tallahassee as a national model. Do you worry about that? I'm sure you've heard the criticism. I'm sure I'm sure you've read it in a lot of detail. Um, do you worry that you're saddling the national party and potentially a presidential candidate, DeSantis, with uh, a policy that can't um, survive nationally? Well, I think for 50 years you've had you know the court that has basically said anybody that doesn't believe in abortion at any time for any reason is to basically sit down and, and shut up and, and your voice can't be heard. And so the court correctly return that to the democratic process. Now, what I will say is that, you know, I believe life begins at conception. This bill does not align with that. It says up to the time that a child has a heartbeat that you can have an abortion uh, for any reason whatsoever. It also, I think, reflects the democratic process because we also said, well, what about rape? What about incest? What about human trafficking? So there's exceptions for all three of those in the Senate bill that we'll take up. And beyond that, what about the life of the mother? What about a fetal abnormality? There are exceptions for that as well. And so I think that's what the democratic process looks like. And you can disagree and say it should be eight weeks or 10 weeks or 15 weeks. It should have exceptions or not have exceptions. But the reality is what we have in our bill is a reflection of the democratic process. The Republicans in our caucus certainly have campaigned on life. I think their entire time they've been in the legislature. There's, but there are differences of opinion within our caucus. But they've campaigned on life. We had an election. Uh, the governor uh, supported and has been a pro-life governor and has said so. He won by 20 points. So every state's different. Uh, California's views on this issue will be different than Florida's. The nations of Europe are between 10 and 14 weeks. So more protective of life than the 15-week paradigm that you mentioned. But you also have to consider where the Democrats are. And and so they have taken a position, I believe, Ryan, that is, is truly extreme in that there's no countries other than China and North Korea that say we should have abortion or allow abortion at any time for any reason up to the 40-week mark. And also turn around and say that the taxpayers, whether you agree with abortion or not, should have to pay for it. 
that parents should not only not have consent if their 13 or 14-year-old has abortion, but not even be notified. But that is exactly what they did in Congress in, in the bill that was passed in the House to basically wipe away, and they use a health exception, which has you know, been interpreted by the courts to be emotional health, really anything. It's, it's really a truly abortion-on-demand bill, including late-term abortions. That's the position of the Democrat Party right now. And so voters, when they go to the polls, and Republicans haven't explained this well, you may be right that as a nation that that's where most people are is at that first trimester with exceptions. And that may be ultimately where in the shift in the democratic process as a nation we ultimately land. But this is a more pro-life state. And I think where we are is defending uh, children at the point of a heartbeat with those reasonable exceptions is a good place for us to land. And, and I'm comfortable where we are. And also would just say to those listening is that there is not an alternative on the other side that says, yeah, we're going to say after the first trimester with exceptions, they want any time for any reason. And if you disagree with them, they want you to pay for it anyway. So let me ask it the other way, because you're pro-life. Why not um, put forward um, an outright ban and exercise your supermajority and pass that? So that would align with what I believe, which is a, truly, I mean, not what I believe. It's what yeah. science tells us that the boy or girl at, at conception is unique. Their DNA is unique. They're different. That's a different life. But I also recognize that 50 years of Roe v. Wade has created a culture where people have come to accept this as the norm. And when you constitutionalize it, as the court incorrectly did, because there's no reference to abortion in the Constitution, for or against, um, you have created a culture where this is absolutely more accepted than it would be had that decision never been made. And I and the rest of my colleagues in the Republican uh, caucus have to recognize that. The country's not there. I mean, we just got out of Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of time and a lot of persuasion that needs to take place to talk about what's happening, what is the development that's happening in that process, and also, at this point, also respect where the woman is uh, in that process. There are arguments on both sides. I recognize that, though I am pro-life from conception. I I recognize that, and I think this is a, a fair place to land where, again, up until that point of heartbeat, you can get an abortion for any reason but with also some additional exceptions that put us in a place that is more reflective of where the culture is today. And I hope one day, look through technology and, and better birth control and better education, that we'll never have to have abortions, um, that we never have to contemplate that, that this is happening to a baby in the womb, especially later in life, as Democrats would, would allow. When you see kids in strollers that have been born prematurely, they would say that kid can be dismembered in the womb 30 weeks on. I mean, no restrictions whatsoever. And that's where they are. Anytime I see anything about Florida from liberals that are, are mad about what you guys are doing there, they talk about book bans. You guys are banning books. It's Fahrenheit 451 down here. It's this authoritarian states where you're raiding the libraries, taking out these uh, innocent publications. What's going on with books? Why are, are Florida legislators so obsessed with what, uh, what's going on in the, in the public libraries and, uh, and telling these libraries what they can can have on the shelves? Good question. First correction is it's not public libraries. So a ban, by definition, would be there's a book you can't get your hands on. Um, we're talking so about- So public libraries, this is only in public schools. Public school libraries. And so we've had uh, books um, in in middle school, for example, that uh, talk about how you can get on a, an app, you know, hookup app to meet, you know, strangers for sex uh, in your neighborhood. We've had things that are in ex really, really graphic detail that if you read them, I and we have those books here, we 
we'd be happy. We have them all tabbed for you. <laughs> there's, a, there's a handful. There's really a handful of books, Ryan, um, that uh, are so over the top yeah. that you would find them in an adult bookstore, but for the fact that those those vendors would not sell them because they're directed at children. And so what we've said is, look, let p- kids be kids. When I say they're explicit, you know, if you went to the erotica section of Barnes & Noble, that's what you're talking about. It's not, you know, people have said we're banning books on Roberto Clemente, and it's just... The, the rhetoric, what's been mostly over the top is what's been said about what we're doing. We're talking about a small handful of books that are being driven by uh, activists outside our schools and perhaps some inside our schools that want to sexualize our kids. And so we've said, look, we have and we have across the country a large number of kids, almost half of our kids who are not on grade level for reading and math when they hit the third grade. Yeah. How about we focus on that? How about we focus on excellent educational outcomes and let, let them figure all this other stuff out later in life? This is not part of a public school education or any education. How did that issue rise to the top of the agenda? I wouldn't say it's the top of the agenda, but it's because uh, we had a lot of angry moms and terrified moms who were saying, why is this in my schools? Yeah. I mean, this is crazy. This is a conversation that should be taking place in the home. And so you have um, among some elite educators who have a perspective that they should raise our children and not parents. And I, and I believe, and I think we believe here in Florida, if you want to talk about the Florida way and the paradigm we're advancing, is that parents have a primary role in the upbringing of their children. And certainly on issues like uh, gender, like you know, sex education, these types of these, yeah, This, this one a- created a lot of heat and a lot of national conversation about restricting gender-affirming care for transsexual minors. I think I've got that right. Yeah. Which is, so uh, tell us about that legislation. And same question, how did that rise to the uh, level of something that uh, needed to be addressed this session? Yeah, well, that issue as well as our parental rights bill rose because we had people that were um, developing plans for children. Planning is a different way of saying parenting for children without their parents' knowledge or consent to change their name, change their dress, basically to transition in school. So they had a double life. They had their life at home that their parents didn't know about. Uh, and they had their life at school where, where, again, I would say activists within our school, not the majority of our teachers, not the majority of our administrators, but a handful. All of us as kids, you know, grow up with, uh, you know, the teen years and all this stuff. And I, I never had any gender confusion, but some kids do. And that's, that's something we should be... Um, compassionate about. We should provide counseling for sure and and be inclusive. But it's a step removed from that for people in the schools to, to hide from parents the fact that they're having Johnny dress up as a girl and be called Jane and, and leading this double life and taking steps to transition them um, into a the different schools, sex. The, the schools themselves. Yeah, and that, was, ha- that was happening in some cases. And that was a real wake-up call to parents. And so that's how our parental rights bill that was improperly named the Don't Say Gay bill, you can go sh- run down the hallways and say, I'm gay. And the, the bill has nothing to do with that. And if you are, if my child's gay, I'm going to love him just as much. And maybe more if they're having a hard time at school. That was a uh, pernicious lie from the get-go, but it ran, as Churchill said, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. And that was one that you had you know, AOC and Joe Biden himself, I think, tweeting about when we ran that bill uh, last year. And we've extended that again this year, both for instructional materials, which we've talked about, but to say, look, this area 
is something one parents have to know about. You can't develop a plan or procedure for a child without a parent even knowing about it. That's all the bill says. And if you're going to do that in this area, parents have to be informed. But that also brought to light that this idea of physically, permanently mutilating, removing somebody's reproductive organs when they're 10, 12 years old because they have some gender confusion is not the right thing to do. And even the Dutch protocol, which is named because they were kind of on the leading edge of this idea that we should give puberty blockers and physically um, change young men and women's bodies um, at an early age, they're backtracking very quickly in Europe. and And we should look and see what they're doing because they're several years ahead of us. While, unfortunately, the president and some people in this country are doubling down that this, no, this is gender affirming. I think that's an Orwellian term. Let kids make a decision. And if, as adults, they decide that they no longer want to be a male and they want to be a female, then, again, that's their right to do so. And we'll support them in that process. But don't do it as children when a lot of the studies show that they change their mind, a a large portion. And you can argue over how many, I've heard the percentage of 80% um, that that change their mind, or maybe they just decide they're gay. And they don't need to physically destroy their bodies at that point if they happen to be gay, or they're not gay at all. They just, they were going through a tough time. Their parents are getting divorced. God knows what they were going through that caused that term, uh, gender dysphoria, at a point in time in their life um, you know, they can make that decision as they become adults. And they really have, you know, come developmentally to a point where they know what they want to do. And if after reflection they want to do that, then, yeah, we'll, we'll support their decision. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So, so many national reporters are down here in Tallahassee because they think that what you all are doing is one of the most important national stories right now. You've described this session as uh, um, transformational. Governor DeSantis talks about Florida being a, a model for the country. Back up, tell us at the start of this legislative session, what were the big priorities that you and the Republican leadership and the governor's office uh, wanted to get done. And then let's talk about where we are in that uh, on that checklist. Wow. There's too many to <laughs> really name uh, and not forget half of them, to be honest with you. <laughs> we got to so, talk about, all right, let's, talk, let's stick with the, the biggies or, or your own priority list that you think are the most important. Sure. sure. That you want people to know about. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your earlier comment, I do think, you know, in, in Great Britain, they talk about a shadow government, you know, and I think Florida in some respects is become kind of the alternative. And, and the great thing about 50 states is we have these laboratories of democracy that people can look and say, I don't want any of that, or I want that for the nation. And so, you know, the governor has had an opportunity and we've had an opportunity to to lead. And as a history major, I'm I'm cognizant. It's, it's rare that you can know at the time that you're really living history or mm. making history. And you, you Usually, feel that way. 
I, I do feel that way. Yeah. Usually when you read and as a history major, you know, you look and say, wow, that guy had no idea that he was going to be the next great poet or this or that as, as he was going through it or the next great, you know, political leader or that what was happening in that individual's time was so monumental such that every student will study it when they study world history. Um, I think Florida is in a very pivotal time and in a very pivotal moment and is leading. And I know from chatting with many of my colleagues around the country that are like-minded, they're saying, what's Florida doing next on this issue? And so I- Other legislators a, around the country. Sure. Who, yeah. Sure. And that's both a blessing and a curse. It's a weight, but it's uh, it's something that, you know, you know, impresses upon me and I think the rest of us here that we have a duty to try to get it right um, and to lead in a philosophical direction that respects freedom, that um, opposes coercion, that says you're in control of your health care, you're in control of your education, we want you to have more money in your pocket. If we have a surplus, that means we've over-collected. And, you know, Ryan Lizen knows better how to spend money for him and his family and those <laughs> he cares about than I do, no matter how well you and I know each other. So those kind of principles um, are, are principles that are on display here, I believe. So we're cognizant that we are in a historical moment. I'm cognizant of that. Tell us a little bit about the formation of the agenda. Um, obviously, there's a lot of competing priorities. How did it come together? Tick off sort of the biggies. As you can imagine, it's not a one meeting type process. It's a, it's a dynamic process. And dynamic here in Florida, for example, we had two major hurricanes. Um, so hurricane relief um, is, is something that, you know, right out of the gate, we knew we had to address hurricanes Ian and Nicole affordability, the crisis of inflation, people are facing uh, rising costs. And so looking at how can we bring down cost? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we did uh, property insurance has been a huge problem here in Florida because of the rising cost of of premiums, not just really from hurricanes, but really an epidemic of litigation over roof claims and kind of junk litigation that has spiked the cost of, of property insurance. So we had a special session literally days after we organized after our election to handle property insurance in a big, bold way that in a normal session would be the thing we would point to as our Super Bowl championship ring. We've got a dozen already passed, and we've got a dozen left on the table, in my mind, of those kinds of pieces of legislation that we could talk about. It's hard to remember all of them, but that was right out of the gate, something we looked at from an affordability standpoint, because this is one where people were stopping you on a walk with your wife saying, hey, what's going on with property insurance? I just got a 40% increase. Yeah. So we came in and said, look, we're going to stop the junk lawsuits. We're going to you know, put some guardrails around it. Now we're also now running a bill to make sure we put guardrails around insurers and make sure they're accountable so that those things we did, um, we, that we continue to have the proper checks and balances on both sides, both on the lawyers and the insurers. But that was one thing very early on that we wanted to address. Um, That's one that doesn't get as much national attention. The ones that tend to get the most national attention are the real hot button ones, huh? Yeah, sure. We took that and did major tort reform. So I was out in Texas and we were kind of bragging back and forth. And we said, you know, we got the best governor in the country. You know, we're no taxes. You know, we led on COVID. We're this, we're this, we're that, you know, lead in school choice. And they said, what about your litigation climate? And it got kind of quiet on our side of the, the room. And so now we fixed that. Now we're, you know, 
at the top, not the bottom of the, the heap when it comes to litigation. We have a, had had a very bad reputation for, for litigation. Uh, housing, we did, you know, Senate President Pasadoma, when you talk about priorities, one of her major priorities was a major transformational housing bill for affordable housing, mainly directed towards workforce housing. Hmm. So in looking at the affordability crisis, we had tort reform, we had housing, we have a major tax bill coming out, tax uh, relief uh, bill coming out that is geared uh, in large part towards families and children. So whether it's strollers or baby formula or diapers, where we put a permanent exemption that did not exist before on our sales tax, really lowering the cost of families and and children uh, so that they have affordability. In other respects, ESG is another one we can talk about that I believe is a driver of cost because it puts a political imprint on the market that drives up costs in a number of areas. What can you do about that? I've I've, I've seen some of the comments you made about ESG and how you were worried that um, it was starting to affect Florida's credit rating. Some of the credit rating companies were starting to say, how are you guys doing on ESG? And we're going to plug that into the formula for your credit rating. Do I have that right? It's only part of the problem. And really, at its core, the problem with ESG is it is a bypass or a hijacking of democracy in this way, is that there are certain issues that we would agree belong in the political process. And so if in Congress tomorrow, the president wants to propose and the Congress wants to pass something that says, you know, thou shalt not drive a gas powered car after 2050, we can do that. And that's where it belongs, because then you're going to have through the committee processes we have here, you're going to hear from all sides about why that could have some terrible unintended consequences on the cost to the middle class to so aggressively move in that direction when maybe renewables aren't quite ready. We all hope for the day when we can, you know, and I wish I could wave a magic wand and say, all energy is clean energy. I really do. But if you're going to force politically us to go there faster, that needs to be in the political process. Um, not in uh, the hands of financial elites that are imposing that from the asset manager level where Mm -hmm. those asset managers like BlackRock control a majority of the shares of all of our major corporations. So when they pick up the phone and you're the CEO and they say, Ryan, you're going to say, yes, sir, what can I do for you? Because they hold most of the shares in your company. And so it's not just about climate, though. It's a, a whole host of things that look very, very similar to more of an AOC agenda than even a Joe Biden agenda, um, and certainly not anything that's center-right. And so by doing so, they've hijacked the democratic process, issues that truly belong in the People's House uh, and the House of Representatives and in the Senate and in the executive branch to, to hash out and for democracy to hash out where we should land, not by you know martini millionaires deciding for us where we should go. So if Florida wants to go this way, uh, and I know we're on radio, but if they want to go this way in the direction to the <laughs> He's right, pointing to the right. <laughs> and, and Larry Fink wants to go in the opposite direction, he literally is suggesting that he has the right to impose his will on us without a single vote, without any accountability to the voters. And that's what's really wrong with ESG. So on an issue like this, where it does seem to run into a, look, these are private individuals making private investments. Um we talk about freedom, why shouldn't they be free to invest in any kind of company with any kind of what you would consider kooky ideology uh, that they want? Why should the state step in and say, hey, hey, wait a second, I don't like you going in an AOC direction. I want you to go more in a, in a renter direction or at least what I consider a neutral direction. Just tell me a little bit about that, that obvious conflict and how you ideologically get around that or can sure. argue that that's not in some way 
in a capitalist system taking away these private investors' freedoms to do whatever the hell they want with their money. And they have every right to do whatever they want with their money, but not with my money. And that's really what's happening. So they're taking, you know, if you look at um, 401ks, for example, it looks like this wonderful egalitarian uh, system where we all uh, set aside money in our retirement accounts, but we all invest in all these retirement funds. And so it looks like this wonderful uh, situation where the middle class has ownership in America's finest companies. And, and that's your voice. And if you want to invest in an ESG fund, go for it. If you want to inje- and invest in something that I think is a kooky idea, go for it. That's <laughs> your money. That's your voice. Yeah. But that's not what's happening. They're taking what should be this wonderful, broad-based ownership uh, in America's greatest corporations that gets aggregated to the asset managers that manage that for us. Because we don't have time to vote our you know 100 shares in Microsoft out of the million that they have outstanding. Yeah. And so we depend on asset managers like a BlackRock or a Vanguard or State Street to do that for us. But they're taking your money and your voice and stealing it and controlling it with their voice. And so all of those different perspectives, liberal, conservative, and otherwise, are voted in one direction, which is the opinions of those at those asset managers who have now bought into, in my view, very crazy ideas that belong, if they're going to belong anywhere, in the political process. So to answer your question, you as an investor have every right to invest in an ESG fund, to put your money wherever you want, because that's your money. So what we're not doing in Florida is what you've seen with CalPERS, for example, where they're weaponizing their pension fund for every left-wing idea under the sun. We will not do that in Florida. We are going to respect capitalism and say, we want our pension fund, because we have liberals in our pension fund, we have conservatives, we have everybody under the sun politically, that's their money, not mine. I have no right to, to control their money and do what Larry Fink is doing with our state pension funds, that we're going to invest based on pecuniary factors only. Go out and get the best rate of return, protect their retirement assets. That's the guardrail you use to make it neutral. Yeah, that's right. Keep the politics out. Let individuals, if they want to spend their money in a particular direction or philanthropically, if Larry Fink wants to take BlackRock's money that they earn and spend it philanthropically, that's his God-given right to do so. We're not saying a word about that. He just can't take our money, the trillions and trillions of dollars that's bigger in the aggregate, the entire national economy. And we're talking about $40 trillion-ish. Um, that is being invested by all these asset managers. It's enormous economic power, something that ought to get an Elizabeth Warren all fired up, but it's moving in her direction so we don't hear a peep out of her. What I didn't talk about, which is HB1, which is our school universal school choice bill, we're saying that public education should be about committing to every child an amount of money in a customized education because every child learns differently. And so we've got this concept of an ESA, which says you can use that any which way you want. You can be in a homeschool, but contract with a traditional public school for one day a week for a physics class because they have availability and a great physics teacher. You, you would actually pay for that, uh, yeah. what you're getting from the public school. The public yeah. school. Um, how do you, you decide on private the, school? How do you, you, can, how do you decide on the, the monetary value of what's going into the ESA? So it's based on what's called our FEFP, the state funds that go to our district schools. The district schools also get federal money, which that scholarship student doesn't receive. They get money from uh, local taxes that they vote in. Those monies don't get. So the, the money that an average student per student would get if they went to the public schools would be more than that. So what people miss when they say, oh, this is going to cost billions of dollars, well, it would cost more if those kids were to remain in public schools 
um, because they, they get more per student, um, essentially, than the scholarship kids get. But it gives them that sum of money, equivalent sum of money, to go either to a private school or if they're homeschooled, just to use that money in a homeschool setting for a wide variety of educationally-based things. Um, there are guardrails around it. We have a concept of customized learning plans, so we want to interact with the parents through testing and other means to say, okay, where is your kid? Look, they're falling behind in reading, for example. If they're we being can, homeschooled. Or, 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 or in private schools, um, uh, in yeah. any, any context, yeah. where the parent can use some of that ESA to hire maybe a certified teacher from a public school to come in and, and really intensively look at where they are and give them customization to say, in the case of reading, you're falling behind. We need to intervene here and find ways to bring you up. And that money could be used for an in-home reading teacher. Nationally, how far does this bill go compared to others like it around the country? Are you guys like way out on the edge on vouchers on school choice? Because this was an issue that kind of like was a big, big deal, especially in the Bush era, kind of lost some of its, its momentum, but has come back uh, big here in Florida. It's come back big across the country, right? Yeah. And I think because of COVID, parents kind of yeah. opened the hood and said, whoa, 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 what's being taught in our schools? They're not well, happy. Yeah, we all with- had those laptops open and we're watching like, holy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. And so people want to have more involvement in their child's education. And so um, that's been a good thing. And so other states, there's been a couple other states that have gone to the universal where it doesn't matter what your income is. Everybody is entitled to it. But Florida by far has the most students in choice that we always have. And now we're, we're the king of the hill for sure. But there's no income cutoff. Rich kids and poor kids get the same check. That's right. But keep in mind, the billionaire's kid is going to probably the best school in the community because it's in a wealthy neighborhood. And the only way that they're entitled- The public school. Yeah, in a public school. And the only way they're entitled to be there is if you can afford a house that costs millions of dollars. And so that billionaire's kid gets a free education with your tax dollars. And so the real objection is- it's a, we're okay if they come to a union-based school, a traditional public school, but we're not okay if that same kid gets less money, essentially, to go to a private school or a different school of their choice, or even a charter school. But So I think that's a, a false objection when you really dig down into it. Uh, and so the other thing that bill does that I'm excited about is kids with unique abilities. So think of autistic kids that we had a backlog. We have a separate program for them that gives them additional resources beyond that $8,500 to get wraparound services that they need perhaps because they're on the spectrum to make sure that they live a life of independence. And so we had a backlog where some parents couldn't get those funds. So we've cleared that backlog. That's an expensive part of this bill. We have high schools that are coming around this bill that are going to be developed strictly for autistic kids. So they're they're tailored for their needs, and they're all going to be able to access that money when before they may not be have been able to afford the, the private school tuition to send their kids to that special school, and now they can. And I'm super excited about it. It's going to benefit many, many people. Wow, okay. We didn't, we didn't even get to talk about the defamation bill. <laughs> you, guys are, uh, you guys are busy. But... Um that one is a little bit of a concern to us in the journalistic community, let me tell you that. I think that's coming, <laughs> is dialing back a bit in response, frankly, to concerns from the media um, and making sure that, you know, I think the governor's goal there that he proposed was to get some new tests. And his concern is, you know, you use anonymous sources that maybe don't really exist and that's not you, but, you know, that you've seen some weaponization, like the Nicholas Sandman, you know, issue where this poor kid, you know, he's a high school kid, gets just 
you know, excoriated by the national media. He's just a high school kid yeah. that got caught up in this culture war and things of that nature where, you know, maybe sources are not really what people say they are. Yeah, but so that, if, you, test case. if you defame someone, if you, if, if, if you sue for defamation, that's all going to come out in discovery. If those, if right. those anonymous sources don't exist, that is going to come out. I agree You're with going you. to win your case. I agree with you. I guess the, the, the thing nationally that the media, especially the, the legal bar, is concerned about is that this is a test case to try and overturn Times v. Sullivan, and that that's the sort of legal strategy here, that it's being steered that way. And um, that precedent to the media is very important. As a public official, I can see why it's not uh, your favorite uh, ruling in Supreme Court history, but that actual malice standard, um, is that the goal? Is it to overturn Times v. Sullivan? It may be. And what I can say is, look, speaking for myself personally, I'm a huge believer in free speech. Um, There was a bill that was going to register bloggers. I do not believe in the government. Well, yeah, that one was crazy. Let's be honest. But but, but I'll also say what really concerns me is I really, really at my core believe in a media that's truly independent, that challenges Republicans, that challenges Democrats. You know, some of the Twitter file stuff, and I haven't read all of it, but the idea that there's any kind of coordination with the media or the government, for that matter, even worse, to silence voices, that's the opposite of free speech. So I just want to make sure that that, you know, we need a robust but independent media, no matter what your politics are, is to really, truly be independent uh, as you are. I believe you are and, and you have been in this podcast. That's critically important to a free society. Florida is the home of two uh, potential presidential candidates here. I'm sure you know them both pretty well. Um, who are you going to back if both of those guys run Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis? What does someone like you uh, do in a case like that? Well, one one is declared, one is not declared, and. Uh, and well, you're I, helping the the non declared one in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, and look, the governor has said, and I would I'm right there with him on this, is that people get frustrated, voters get frustrated, people win an election and they're you know focused on another election. Is that he's rightly focused on making sure that we have a monumental session, and we are having a monumental session here in Florida. We're doing things that. People have either been afraid to do and haven't had the courage to do. We're doing, we're solving big, big problems with solutions that some are controversial we've talked about, but many that we haven't talked about, whether it's encouraging better reading, whether it's getting the technology out of schools on the social media and school start times and making sure that we're really doing right by our children um, that have wide bipartisan support. Um, and, and we're doing those things and staying focused on doing our job. And I, I'm proud of the governor for doing that and if he decides to run for president, but waiting until we're done with session to make that decision. And when he when a decision is made, you know, I'll let you know. We can come back and do another podcast. So not ready yet. You know but I so am. not ready to make that choice, huh? We have a former president who did a great job as president and a governor who's I believe the greatest governor in the country and has had a just a monumental run uh, through how he handled COVID in a remarkable way and how he's governing in, in this state. I have uh, no hesitation about where I'll be. I can tell you that, and I'll state it unequivocally when you ask me again, but wait till the handkerchief drops. That's what we do when we have what's called signy die, that last day of session. We literally drop a handkerchief, and as it falls to the floor, that's the end of our session. Interesting. You're uh, not well-known nationally. Just give us about five minutes telling us how you became a speaker. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, about my background, um, was in the military for 23 years, mostly reserve time, but was in Desert Storm in 1991 as an active duty guy. So what year were you born? 
I was born in 67. Wow, you look young. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> I can't believe you were in thank Desert you. Storm. Yeah. I'm, I'm an old dad. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So. I think that's why I thought you were a lot younger. <laughs> so I was looking yeah, at the pictures the, on your site. the baby pictures. That's yeah, right. Yeah, I was like, wait a second. Right, How exactly. was he in Desert Storm? Yeah, so, so I graduated in 1989 from Davidson College, a history major. And, Did you have uh, an emphasis in history? American history. American history, and, yeah. Uh, Any and, particular period? Early American history and the founding really has is, is always fascinated me. I think, um, you know, our, our country's history is, is so amazing um, in terms of how it, it broke with a lot of the history of Europe, the monarchy, and just a totally different paradigm and, and one that has uh, served us well for over two centuries. Um, so came out of Davidson, went down to the recruiter and joined the military. I'd always been interested in the military and had a military family. No, no, actually, so you were the first. Ha- and yeah, and I had uh, gotten a nomination at the Naval Academy uh, coming out of high school and fell in love with Davidson, never finished the application. Um, so that might have turned out differently. Got a ROTC scholarship at Vanderbilt to go into the Marine Corps. But again, I fell in love with Davidson, and uh, there's a longer story there. found a book in my attic uh, that was uh, Paradise Lost, a copy from a long time ago, like 1907, I think it was, uh, that was huh. from the Davidson College Library. That wasn't didn't belong to us. It was must have been the prior owners. In your attic? At that time, as I'm looking for signs of providence and where I'm supposed to go, I found it in my attic. And I'd gone up there and just fell in love with the campus and got a great education. There were small schools, so small class sizes. You know, you can really interact. Wait, I got to know more about, this, about the book. So you've, how old are you when you find the book? I'm 18 years old, and I'm trying to figure out. I got accepted to Vanderbilt, University of Florida, Davidson College, you know, and I'd really, really, you know, liked Davidson, uh, but I was waitlisted to Davidson. I'd been accepted to these other places in Stetson, I think, and so I was, you know, really kind of praying about where I should go and and found that, and that was kind of just was a little it, sign from above. Did you actually, <laughs> did, were you familiar with Paradise Lost, or you read it for the first time? Familiar. Okay. No, I was familiar with it, but I, I literally, we were up doing like Christmas stuff or whatever, you know, and after you applied and, and uh, found this copy of this book. And I, you know, I'd never heard of Davidson College. And so I just kind of took a leap of faith, made it off the wait list, got into Davidson, did well there, but um, had a great education, great experience. Did you grow up um, in a very religious family? Yeah. Preacher's kid. Yeah. So the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> preacher's kid. Um, <laughs> you know, my mom was a school public school teacher. Um, so public service was ingrained in me from a very early age. Is there, are there any lessons that you learned? Are there any, are there any skills that you learned from your, from your dad as a, as a preacher that are transferable to politics? Certainly some great examples of differences he made in people's individual lives. And then, you know, there were missionaries that came in and out of the, uh, the to our church. And, and, and we certainly read about and heard about people behind the Iron Curtain, the old Soviet Union that, that were persecuted for their faith and smuggling Bible into places like China and the Soviet Union. And as I described in in my designation speech, that's really probably if I had to point to where I started to develop a political philosophy, it was in that. And so I had this fascination as a kid, you know, pulling out the old maps, the paper maps that nobody uses anymore to kind of fold them out and and look at the free countries and the countries that were, you know, under the Iron Curtain or under, you know, the the foot of, of communism and, and really at a very early age developed uh, a very deep love and appreciation for freedom. Um, for me, that freedom means your freedom to, you know, not believe in God, your freedom to, be- to basically hold everything I hold in contempt, but that's your freedom uh, that, that God's given you and, and I believe in it to my core. And so that really animates a lot of what I believe in and uh, today. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be with you. And that's our show. 
Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Ament is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And special thanks to Chris Culp for field production in Tallahassee. Please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.